Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Evening, the rest of you can open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 19 as we're continuing a summer in the Psalms, Psalm 19. And I want to plug a book. I very rarely plug a book from the pulpit, but Don and I just finished reading The Insanity of God. An excellent, excellent book. And there goes my bookmarker. Uh, my ex, actually, it's an airline ticket. I wrote this on the, on the plane. Um, the Insanity of God, an excellent book. And I recommend that you read it. And I'm going to give you a Surgeon's General warning. If you read this book, do not just read it and put it back on your shelf and say, that was a great book. This is a life-changing book that will challenge you to the very core of your being in area of missions. What it's about, it's about a guy named Nick Ripken, that's his pseudonym, who has, for the past 20 years, gone around the world and has interviewed people in the persecuted church in places like Somalia, in Russia, in China, in Southeast Asia, in Muslim nations. And this book is just his story of how the church has survived in persecuted areas. And I'm going to give you two stories from this book that are amazing. The first one comes from Russia. And it's interesting that our team just got back from Russia a few weeks ago, but back in the 1950s, when Russia was the Soviet Union, and Christianity was illegal, and Bibles were illegal, and you, and you really couldn't have conferences and crusades. Some of the leaders of the Russian church said, you know, we've got a lot of teenagers and youth that need to get together and have some fellowship. So let's bring together the youth of Russia for a, for a week-long conference. And so what they did, it was pretty risky at the time to do this because they could have gotten arrested, they could have gotten in trouble, but they brought together 700 teenagers and college students together. And these these young students didn't really have their Bibles. No, nobody really had a Bible during this time because it was illegal. But here's what they did. They decided to play a game with the, the college students. They said, hey, why don't you guys break up into groups and from memory see if you can reproduce Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from memory since you've grown up having to memorize the Bible because it's illegal. And guess what happened? At the end of the conference, they compiled the, the, the work that the students had done and they recreated Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John from memory with only about six or seven mistakes. And that puts us to shame when it comes to memorizing the Bible. Let me give you another story. The missionary, Nick Ripken, had to go on a secret trip on a 14-hour journey to this farmhouse in China where the underground church in China met with all these leaders, over 130 leaders met together in this secret church setting. And out of those 130 to 50 believers, only seven had a Bible. And so at the end of the week, here's what they were doing, and it shocked the missionary. They were ripping out pages of the Bible and handing it to each other. He was shocked, like, why are they, why are they ripping up the Bible? What they were doing was each person was getting a copy of a book of the Bible to take home to memorize, because that's all they could have was just bits and pieces of the Bible. Now think about that. You go down to the Bible Lighthouse, Lori, and you can find a whole shelf of Bibles that you can buy. Have you ever thought about being in a culture where the Bible is 
illegal. I mean, these persecuted nations put us to shame in how they view the Bible, their memory of the Bible, their love for the Bible. And so it it forces us to ask some questions about ourselves. How do we respond to the Scriptures? How do we love this Word? How do we respond to this Word? How do we memorize this Word? Psalm 19 is probably one of the most famous passages of Scripture that speaks about God's Word. C.S. Lewis said this about Psalm 19. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is about speech. It's about talking. And David masterfully puts forward for us a drama with three main characters. The first character to speak in the drama is the heavens. The second character to speak in the drama is the written word of God. And the third character to speak in the drama is the sinner saved by grace. So let's see this drama unfold before us and find out what these three have to say. So let's read together Psalm 19. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their measuring line goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This psalm is broken up into three parts with the three speakers. The first is the heavens, the second is the word of God, and the third is the the sinner saved by grace. So let's first of all look at God's glory in creation. Verses 1 through 6 is God's glory in creation where predominantly the sun, the sun dominates the sky. Notice what it says there. The heavens, the stars, the heavens, the planets declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Now, it's, it's interesting here that David speaks of the heavens speaking. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you have ever heard the sun sing? Anybody heard a moon talk? Anybody heard a star twinkle? Well, maybe twinkle, twinkle, little star. I don't know. 
It's interesting that David could have just said, you know, look up at heaven, look up at the sky, and be amazed at the sun, be amazed at the stars, be amazed at the planets, get your telescope out and be amazed. And we can do that, but there's something mysterious here that he says. He says, the heavens are speaking. The sun is speaking. They're singing. They're they're pouring forth speech. They're declaring the glory of the Lord. And we have to stop and ask a question. What exactly is the glory of God? If it says the heavens are declaring the glory of God, what is the glory of God? That Hebrew word glory means weightiness. It's this whole idea that God is majestic. God is weighty. God is powerful. It's that, it's that character of God that makes God God. Now, we don't really understand God's glory, but we can, we can worship him. We can praise him. It was often related to the glory cloud in the Old Testament. When God's manifest Shekinah glory would show up at the tabernacle and there'd be the glory cloud. Listen to what Isaiah says in Isaiah 42.8. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other nor my praise to carved idols. This whole idea of glory is God's blazing beauty that's on display for the entire world to see. And it says here the stars, the sun, the the sky are singing forth the glory of God. They're, They're declaring God's weightiness, God's glory. And it talks about the sun here. It's talking about a a 24-hour cycle day. Day and night, the sun comes up, the sun comes down, there's a 24-hour cycle. And every time the sun comes up, and every time the sun goes down, and every time in between, every time we look at that, it's telling about God's glory. In verse 4, it says, their measuring line goes out through all the earth. Now, maybe in your translations, it may say their voice. In the original language, it's an interesting word there, it's the word chord. Like when you strum a chord on a guitar, you strum a chord on a piano. It's the idea that, that the sun is playing music, and the music is about the glory of God. The sun dominates the sky. Now, it's very easy to see why pagan cultures worship the sun. I mean, most pagan cultures, they worship the sun because it's the brightest light in the sky. Without the sun, we would have no life. We'd have no heat. We'd have no source of, uh, of, of anything without the sun. And so it's, it's easy to see how pagans would look up and say, okay, there's the big light in the sky. I'm going to worship that. But the Bible says this. Just looking up at the sun and knowing that there's a creator is enough to damn you to hell. It won't save you. Now, Listen to what, listen to what um, Romans says. Because here, here's the issue. There's no such thing as an atheist. Contrary to popular opinion, there is no such thing as an atheist. Now, people may claim to be atheists, but deep down inside, here's the issue. Every single person that does not acknowledge God, what they're doing is they're suppressing the truth that they know about God, and they're choosing not to believe in God even though in their hearts they know there is a God. In their conscience they know there's a God. They're just suppressing that. They're pushing it aside. They know deep down inside there's a creator, but they're choosing to say, I'm suppressing that. So there's really no such thing as an atheist. They're just suppressing what they intuitively know. And Paul says that in Romans 1, 18. Paul says in Romans 1, 18 through 21, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. They, they hold that truth down. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, like the sun, the moon, and the stars. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here's the issue. When people look up at the sun and they realize that there's a, a creator or an intelligent being, that's just enough to hold them accountable. That can't save them. As a matter of fact, Paul, later on in Romans chapter 3.19, says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world be held accountable to God. Now you're probably thinking at this time, what about the sincere and innocent person in the deep dark jungles of Africa who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about the sincere and innocent person in Africa? Will they go to heaven if they simply just believe in the Son? After all, they're sincere and they're innocent. They've never heard of Jesus. What's the answer to that? We'd like it to be true. It would be politically correct for it to be true. It would, it would sound like the loving thing, but there is no biblical evidence for that whatsoever. Listen to how I framed the question. I gave you a false assumption, didn't I? What did I say? What about the sincere and innocent person in Africa? Let me ask you a question. Is there any sincere and innocent person on the face of the earth? No, there's no sincere and innocent person. The Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. So there's no really sincere person out there. There's no innocent person out there. Everybody falls short of God's glory. And so we have to have more than just general revelation of the sun, moon, and stars. We need the gospel. And so let's just think about this logically. Okay, next week I'm going to India on a mission trip. Our team went to Russia a few weeks ago. What would happen, logically, if I went into the villages and began to preach the gospel to them? If this is true, that they're innocent and they're sincere, then the best thing we could do is just leave them alone. Let them stay in their village and worship all their Hindu gods and worship their ancestors and let them be sincere in that and let them just have the light that they have from looking up at the heavens and, and, then, and then they'll go to heaven. The worst thing we can do is to show up and tell them about Jesus because then when we do that, they're accountable. Does that make any sense? You see, we need more than just creation. Now, the creation points to God. The sun dominates the sky and we look up at creation and we look up at the sun, moon, and stars and we look at the mountains and we look at the oceans and we look at all that God's created in our hearts. We say, there is someone greater than myself out there that's in charge of all this. But that doesn't save you. That's general revelation. We need something more specific. We need something more concrete. We need something more dominant than the sun. And that's where David goes next. He talks about how God's word, the scripture, should dominate our lives. If the sun here in the first part of this dominates the, the sky with its heat, with its rays, with its presence, then David transitions and says there's something greater than the sun that dominates. It's God's written word. And by God's written word, that's how we find out about God. That's how we find out about salvation. So let's see here in verses 7 through 11 how scripture dominates our lives. Now, David's going to use a lot of synonyms for God's word. He says the law of the Lord, 
the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. Those are all just saying the same thing. It's talking about the written word of God. He's basically saying God's written word. Now, for David, during that period of redemptive history, it would have been the Old Testament law that he was talking about. But for us, since we have the totality of scriptures, he's talking about the totality of Genesis to Revelation, the written word of God. And what he does here is that he tells us that God's word is is true. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so what David's going to do here is he's going to give six attributes of the word of God. You can see him right there, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. That's number one. The testimony of the Lord is sure. That's number two. The precepts of the Lord are right. Number three. The commandments of the Lord are pure. Number four. The fear of the Lord is clean. Number five. And the rules of the Lord are true. Number six. Again, these are all pretty much saying the same thing. He's just stacking them up one on top of each other to give us a total picture here that God's written word is trustworthy, it's reliable, it's true, it's to be believed, it's to be obeyed. It is the perfect treasure of God's revelation of himself to us. It's God's word. But then he's going to give four descriptions of the benefits that we get from God's word. What does God's written word do for us? How do we relate to the word of God? Well, let's look at these four benefits We see the first one in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, doing what? Reviving the soul. Maybe some of your translations say converting the soul. It's this whole idea that God's word not only brings us knowledge of salvation, but it brings comfort. It It brings refreshing It brings this comfort. It brings this um, revival. It restores us. How many times have you ever just like read the Bible when you needed hope or you needed help, and just by reading a passage of Scripture, you felt better because the Bible revived you? It just gave you a word of hope. It gave you a word of encouragement. Like no other book can because it's God's word. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. It, It gives us strength in our souls. It brings about refreshing. But notice what else it says there. In the second half of verse 7, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Making wise the simple. Now, this has nothing to do with intelligence. I I wish it were, but it has nothing to do with intelligence. When the Bible talks about wise and simple or wise and foolish, it's often talking about your morality, how you live. The fool lives an immoral lifestyle. The wise lives a moral lifestyle. So the Bible tells us how to live morally pure lives. How to live clean, upright lives. And that's what Paul says in Titus, Titus 2, 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. God's grace in his word teaches us to live upright, godly lives in this present age. It makes wise the simple. But thirdly, It rejoices the heart. Look at verse 8. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. It's not a drudgery to obey the Bible. Some people look at the Bible like, man, this this is an old book of rules that I've got to obey. They see it more as a duty that you have to do as opposed to a delight that you want to do. And one of the ways we should approach the Word of God is that it's a joy to obey this Word. It brings rejoicing to my life to honor and love this word. Listen to what John says in 1 John, verse 5. 
or chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The, the commandments of God are not burdensome to us. They're not a burden. They're things that we want to do because God has so worked in our hearts to give us a passion for his word. But look at the fourth thing it says there in the second half of verse 8. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. It opens our eyes. How many of you have ever had an aha moment when you've read the Bible? You're like reading the Bible and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, that makes sense now. Oh, that's how I've been living. Oh, that's how I'm not supposed to be living. Oh, it all makes sense. Have you ever had, is it just me that has those moments? Or have you ever had those moments where you're like, it makes sense. The Bible opens our eyes to the truth. Look at verse 10. There's a play on words here that you really don't get unless you study the original language. David gets to the end of talking about the word of God. And then in verse 10, he says, this word is more to be desired, desired than gold, fine gold, honey, and the honeycomb. More to be desired. The word of God is to be desired. Where else does that word desired show up? Back in Genesis 3, when the serpent tempted Eve and she saw that the fruit was desirable, and she desired the fruit. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make to one wise, she took of the fruit and also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The tree was desired. She, 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 here's the irony. Eve desired the fruit, as opposed to desiring God's word. And David here says, we are to desire God's word. We're to long for God's word. Now, I want you to do me a favor here and just turn over to Psalm 119, okay? Remember in your mind, Psalm 19, Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is the longest book in the Bible. It's right in the middle of the Bible, and it's a book about the Bible. <laughs> it's about the Word of God. And so Psalm 119, I want you to show you just a few passages of Scripture, and I want you to see if you see a theme here, okay? We're just going to do a little, short little Bible study here in Psalm 119. I want you to see if you see a repeated theme of words that show up in the psalmist's relationship to God's Word. Psalm 119.16. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Look at verse 24. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Look at verse 35. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Verse 40. Behold, I long for your precepts, and your righteousness give me life. Verse 47. For I find my delight in your commandments. Verse 92. It's a lot of verses. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Verse 111, 
Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Verse 131, I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. Verse 162, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. And then look at verse 174, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Do you see what the psalmist is saying here? I mean, we could have gone on and on. What's he saying about God's word? What, what, does, he, what does he feel about God's word? Delight, joy, love. He wanted, he's a hunger. And so I've got to ask ourselves a question. Do we have this same hunger and passion and delight for God's word the way the psalmist does? Do we see God's word as better than the richest thing that we could get, better than the finest food, better than honey, better than gold? Do we see God's word as a treasure to be enjoyed? And David says there's great reward. In verse 11, there's great reward in keeping the word. Do you see David's progression in this psalm? It's about speech. Who's talking first? The heavens are talking. And what dominates? The sun. Then he shifts gears and says, now the written word, like the sun that dominates, God's word is speaking, and it should dominate our lives. Now one commentator has said it like this. He says, the sun can be both welcome in giving warmth and terrifying in its unrelenting heat. So too, the word of God can be both life imparting, but also scorching, testing, and purifying. But neither are dispensable. There could be no life on this planet without the sun. There can be no true human life without the revealed word of God. But this is not where the psalm ends. In verses 12 through 14, there's one other person that speaks. Heavens have spoken. God's word has spoken. And now David, the psalmist, speaks. And here's the issue. This is what happens. When you are confronted with this word, when this word lays you bare, when this word comes scorching like the sun upon your life and exposes you, when you come face to face with this word, you begin to realize just how much you don't live up to this word. You realize just how sinful you really are, and you realize that your holiness and your manner of life and your obedience is not anywhere close to what the standard of this word has. And so here's what's happened. David's been thinking about God's word, and it lays him bare. It lays him bare. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about God's word. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. God's word makes you naked. It's like a scalpel that comes and cuts through your soul and exposes you. Now let me just ask you a question this morning. As graphic as that may sound, if you're a true child of God, don't you want that to happen to you? And let's be honest. If you're a true child of God, don't you want this word to come and expose you and lay you bare? Don't you want to be pierced by this word? Don't you want God's word to dominate your life? Is not that your desire? 
So this whole psalm is about what dominates. In the first part, the sun dominates. The sun dominates. In the second part, God's written word dominates. And then in the third part, it gets to the question, okay, then how do I not let sin dominate my life? How do I not let sin dominate my life? Because what does the word of God do? It reveals sin. Paul tells us in Romans 7, 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, God's word, I would not have known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you should not covet. So here's what happens. If you're really serious about this word, and you read this word, and you meditate upon this word, and you think about this word, the only true response is to confess sin in light of the word. And that's exactly what David does. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Let's ask a question. What are these hidden faults he's talking about? two things I think he's talking about when he talks about hidden faults. One is just those areas in our lives that we're not aware of. Blind spots in our character, blind spots, maybe other people see them, but we don't. They're just, they're hidden things that we're not quite sure, we're not aware of them. And God's word needs to point those out to us because we may be living in an area of sin and we're not purposely doing it, it's just we're not, we're clueless, we're we're not aware of it. Listen to what Psalm 139, 23 through 24 says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Sometimes we just need to pray to God and say, God, just expose, if there's any sin in my life, let me know about it. Because sometimes we have blind spots. Sometimes we have hidden faults. We don't know we're sinning. Somebody else may know. And so David says, keep me free of these hidden faults. But here's another thing I think it is. Secret sin. So sins that you and I commit that nobody else knows about. Or at least we think nobody else knows about or we wish nobody else would find out about. Those things we do in secret that we hope and pray never come to light. Maybe it's surfing the net after your wife and children have gone to bed so that you can watch pornography in the darkness of your basement. Maybe it's a deep-seated gossip that you have in your heart for a coworker that you're just seething with anger and it never comes out, but it's a secret sin. Or maybe it's bitterness that you have against someone. It's something that's secret that you think nobody else knows about, but you're holding on to it as a secret sin. Here's the issue. If you keep sin buried for too long, you can become very comfortable with that sin. Here's what needs to happen with the word of God and sin. We need to actually see sin for what sin really is. Think about its danger. Think about its corruption. Think about how in the past when you committed that sin, it brought heartache. Think about all the things that are going to happen in your life if you continue to nurse that secret sin. Because here's what happens. If you continue to, to hold on to that secret sin and never deal with it, what, what starts out as a secret sin is going to soon become public. And it's going to be known. 
And better to deal with it when it's still in the, in the secret recesses of your heart than you, than you look behind you and have a trail of bodies because you've been captive to this sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones says something very illuminating on this when he talks about sin. He says, we need to pull it out. Pull the sin out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it really is, and then you've truly dealt with sin. You really don't deal with sin until you pull it out into the light. Just like anything. You don't really deal with something until you pull it out into the light. And that's what David's praying here is, God, bring, the, bring my sin out into the light so I can see it. I know you see it, God, but I need to see it so I can confess it. I can deal with it. I've got a secret sin here, God, and I need to be declared innocent from that. Lord, help me in the secret sins. But then he takes it one step further. Notice what he says in verse 13. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. I don't know what your translation is there. Maybe willful or arrogant. Let them not have dominion over me. It's this whole idea of sins that you commit knowing full well that you're doing them. You know you're doing them. They're a pattern in your life. You're arrogant, you're stubborn, and you're like, I'm going to do this anyway. I know it's wrong. People have told me it's wrong. I know God's word says it's wrong. I know it's wrong, but mm, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to do it anyway because I want to do it. Do you know in the Old Testament, there was, a, there was an issue of how to deal with types of sins. There were sins that you committed unintentionally where you hurt somebody, but then there were what they were called high-handed sins, sins that you knew full well what you were doing. Listen to how Moses describes this in Numbers chapter 15, 27 through 31. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be given, forgiven, and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. Okay, unintentional sin. For example, you're driving your ox cart and you turn the corner and you accidentally hit a person and you kill them. Involuntary manslaughter. You didn't mean to do it. It was unintentional. Or, or you did something where it wasn't premeditated. It was an unintentional sin. It still had to be dealt with. It still had to be atoned for. It still had to be addressed. But notice the second level that Moses says here in verse 30. But the person who does anything with the high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he's despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off and his iniquity shall be on him. A high hand premeditated, arrogant. I'm going to do this anyway. Not an unintentional, like, oh man, I, I didn't know I did that. I didn't mean to do that. It was an accident. It was still a sin. This is, I'm going to commit a deliberate, premeditated sin. And notice what David prays here. Do you see what he says in the second half of verse 13? Let them not have dominion over me. Let me not be enslaved to this. Don't, don't let them have power over me. I don't want to be dominated by this type of sin. Jesus said in John 8, 34, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's what David's saying. Don't let these sins enslave me. Romans 6, 14, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. How easy it is to fall deeper and deeper into sin. What starts out as a little secret hidden sin that nobody knows about soon becomes a lustful habit that dominates 
your entire life. And David says, don't let this sin dominate me. I don't want to have the sin have dominion over me. I don't want to be controlled by this. And and do you see the connection here of how, how he's just talked about the word of God? If we obey the word of God, if we meditate upon the word of God, if we, if we long for the word of God, do you see how when the word of God comes and, and takes root in our heart, how it prevents us from sinning? Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with that temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Psalm 119, 17. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. Psalm 119, 133. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Now, verse 14 is the culmination of the psalm. What's the psalm been about? Speech, talking. Heaven's talking, stars talking, sun talking, the word of God talking. And finally, what does David say? Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. You see, what usually comes out of our mouths is a result of what's been brewing in our hearts. That's why he says, may the, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. Do you know Jesus addressed this issue very candidly when he talked about what actually comes out of our mouths? In Matthew chapter 12, 34 through 37, he says this, you brood of vipers. He's talking to the Pharisees here. How can you speak good when you're evil? And here's the, here's the point Jesus is making. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. That should make us shudder. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In Mark 7, 20-23, Jesus says this, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And we've got to stop and ask a question. How in the world is that going to happen? How will we have pure speech how are we going to have a pure heart how does it happen do we we somehow clean ourselves up do we make ourselves good enough how does david end the psalm oh lord my rock and my redeemer and that's where jesus comes into the psalm we need a redeemer a redeemer means someone who saves us someone who rescues us someone who gets us out of slavery out of death psalm 18 1 through 3 I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I will take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the name of the Lord who's worthy to be praised and I will be saved from mine enemies. We need a redeemer, Jesus Christ. Now here's the interesting thing about this psalm. This entire psalm's been about speech. The heavens are talking. The sun is talking. 
God's word is talking, and David is talking, but who gets the final word? Who's the ultimate word of God? Jesus. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the word, Jesus. And the word, Jesus, was with God, and the word, Jesus, was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So our only hope for not being dominated by sin, our only hope for having pure speech, our only hope for having a clean heart, our only hope is through the living word, Jesus Christ, who's the ultimate speech of God, the living word. It's through his cleansing blood. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We need the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 7 through 9, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The dominance of speech. The sun dominates the sky. God's word dominates our lives. David prays, Lord, let not sin dominate me. Have dominion over me. So let me just ask you a question this morning. It's a question that I've asked myself this week as I prepared this sermon, even praying about it this morning. What dominates your life? Be real honest. What dominates your life? What usually dominates your life is where you spend your time and your money and your resources and your energy. What dominates your life? Is it a secret sin that you're nursing that nobody else knows about, but it's dominating your life? You're in the grips of this sin and it's got you in its clutches and you're dominated by it. What dominates your life? Is it an idol? What should be dominating your life? Well, the psalm is very clear. The word of God and the glory of Christ. Christ Jesus should dominate your life and his word should dominate your life. And so what we need to do this morning is we need to meditate upon the glory of the gospel because here's the truth. Here's the truth. Whether you like it or not, here's the truth. God's word has been preached. You may not like what I had to say this morning, but it's God's word. And we have one choice when we respond to God's word. And that's to say, yes, Lord. We can't bargain with God. We can't play games with God. We've got to deal with what the text says. And here's the beauty of the gospel. Here is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel says this, I am more sinned. I am more flawed. I am more broken. I am more hopeless than I ever thought. Agreed? But here's the beauty of the gospel. In Christ, I am more loved, I am more accepted, I am more forgiven, I am more blessed than I ever dared hope. So some of you here today are broken. 
Some of you here today are in dominion of sin. Some of you here are in the clutches of sin and you are hopeless because that sin dominates you. But let me give you the good news. You do not have to stay there. In Christ Jesus, he's your redeemer, he's your rock, and he can free you through the power of his word, through the power of his cross. So here's my encouragement to you this morning. If you're despairing over your sin, if there's a secret sin in your life, if you're, if you're in the dominion of sin this morning, fly to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Let God, with his scalpel of his word, cut you deeply. Do a major surgery on you and cut out that spiritual cancer that is invading your life through your sin and let him restore you. Some of us are afraid to go under the knife. Let's just say that. How many of us, now, surgery speaking, a lot of us are afraid of surgery. Who wants to be cut open? And sometimes God cuts us open without anesthesia. And sometimes it's painful. But would you rather have Jesus cutting you open with his word and making you better, or would you rather have the cancer spreading and be in dominion to sin? So we need to find forgiveness this morning. We need to find comfort this morning in the final words of what David says here, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. With the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And for some of you, you have a secret sin. And no, I'm not going to ask you to come up here and confess your sin to everybody. But I will ask you to confess your sin to Jesus and have him bring it out in the light so that you can deal with it. Some of you may be in dominion to a pattern of sin that's a presumptuous sin, that's a sin habit that's, that's dominating your life and you just can't get loose from it. And you need the cleansing power of the cross this morning to, to, to get you out of its clutches. For some of us, we may have just lost our, our love for God's word. We give lip service to God's word. And shame on us when there are Chinese Christians who are tearing out pieces of the Bible because they don't have copies of it when we have three or four in our houses that sit dusty and we dare crack them open except for on Sunday mornings. God, we need your grace this morning. So would you just spend a few moments this morning in the quietness of this moment to do what this psalm tells us to do. Search our hearts. See if the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart are acceptable and, and go, go honest before God this morning. It may be painful, but going under the knife of God is a whole lot more beneficial for you in the end than to be eaten alive by the cancer of sin and withering and waking up one morning thinking, what in the world did I do? So spend some time in prayer this morning.
Father, we need your help this morning. We oftentimes are disobedient children. We have sin deep in our hearts that we hope nobody else finds out about. And Lord, I dare say for many in this room, they're, they're under the dominion of the sin. It dominates their lives. The word of God does not dominate. The glory of Christ does not dominate, but sin dominates. Lord, I pray in your strong name that today those shackles would be released by the power of the gospel and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. You are our rock and redeemer, Lord Jesus, and, and you can come and you can release captives from prison. So my prayer is you do that this morning. Release the captives. Because, Father, we want to be a people whose, whose words are for the building up. Our words speak life. Our words glorify you. Our words are seasoned with salt. Our words testify about Christ. We don't want to have corrupt words. And Lord, we want the meditations of our heart. We want what we think about and what we dwell upon and what dominates our hearts to be acceptable to you. And we know that only comes by, by treasuring and longing and delighting in your word. As the sun dominates the sky, may your word dominate our lives so that we will not be dominated by sin. And we know, Holy Spirit, you can do this. You're sovereign, you're powerful, you're gracious. You can do a deep work of grace in lives. And so we trust, Holy Spirit, that you will do that. I pray for soft hearts this morning, that people would be ready to receive the scalpel, that we'd be ready to go under the knife of God's word, whatever that looks like, for his glory alone. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.